fathers and fathering you think that is so important that you ask us to pray for you as our Father to give us the right image of what you are. Lord, I thank you that we can come to you in that way just like a child would be able to freely come before his earthly father. I pray, Lord, that you will bless as we share a message here today that it will be a comfort and a guide and an encouragement and a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Just when you all thought I had reached perfection. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a Father's Day message, when you think of that, sometimes you think of, uh, let's beat up the fathers today and make them all feel bad when they go home. Uh, and give all the wives some ammunition to hit them over the head with. share with you today is, I think, a very important message for fathers and for other folks, thank you, for, for other folks who have to deal with relationships. So this is going to hit some of you as you think. It's going to hit your memory. I hope it hits some of you who have children at home. I, I hope it hits some of you who are married, because the principles I'm going to share, they belong in a marriage, too. But also, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, which is the person next to you. Actually, the principles I'm going to share are principles that work in about any relationship, uh, if not applied actually, applied spiritually and carefully. So that's where we're headed. I'm going to start out by reading a poem that I came across. Uh, Elrod Laney wrote a poem. I want to share it with you and hope I can get through it without crying. One day when Bruce was just a lad, first starting out in school, he came into my workshop and climbed upon a stool. I saw him as he entered, but I hadn't time to play. So I merely nodded to him and said, don't get in the way. He sat a while just thinking, as quiet as could be. Then carefully he got down and came and stood. 
stood by me. He said, old chef never works. And he has lots of fun. He runs around the meadows and barks up at the sun. He chases after rabbits and always scares the cats. He likes to chew on old shoes and sometimes mother's hats. But when we're tired of running and we sit down on a log, I sometimes get to thinking, I wish my dad was a dog. Now I know he worked real hard to buy us food and clothes, and you need to get the girls those fancy ribbon bows. But sometimes when I'm lonesome, I think it'd be lots of fun if my daddy was a dog and all his work was done. Now when he finished speaking, he looked so lonely there, I reached my hand out to him and ruffled up his hair. And as I turned my head aside to brush away a tear, I thought how nice it was to have my son so near. I know the Lord didn't mean for man to toil his whole life through. Come on, my son. I'm sure I have some time for you. You should have seen the joy and sunlight in his eyes as we went out to play, just my son and I. Now, as the years have flown, and youth has slipped away, I've tried always to remember to allow some time to play. When I pause to reminisce and think of joys and strife, I carefully turn the pages of this wanderer's book of life. I find the richest entry recorded in the daily log is the day that small boy was born. I wish my dad was a boy. You know, sometimes when we remember back, we think some things I would have done Alive and up a bit, they say fatherhood has changed over the years. I heard about a father being asked who was in charge of his home, and his answer was this Well, my wife bosses the children, my children boss the dog and the cat, and I can say anything I want to the goldfish. Uh, it may have changed over the years, and we can talk about fatherhood and motherhood uh, and, and the home today and, and, and how some things have really broken down, not in every home, but in many homes. But I think God's idea of what a home is hasn't changed a bit and what God expects of it. And this morning, I want you to turn to the 27th chapter of Genesis, and we're going to read the story of Isaac. Esau. We're going to read the story of Jacob, I mean Isaac, Jacob.
Jacob and Esau. And of Isaac passing the blessing on to Jacob. Now, there was, when this happened, there was a little deception going on. I want you to know that. And, and it doesn't seem right. Those two boys, Jacob and Esau, were really twins. But Esau came out first. And that makes him the firstborn. And at that time, the firstborn would be the one who would get the blessing. But in this particular story we're going to read, it doesn't work that way. And you might say, well, this whole thing kind of goes against the very thing that God teaches. Because it shows the sinfulness of human hearts. But at the same time, I am so thankful that God can still use sinners to accomplish His purposes. God can use a crooked stick to draw to draw a straight line. Anytime you want, God can do that. And so, in the twenty-seventh chapter of Genesis, what we come to is a time when Isaac was old. Not only was he old, he was blind, and I think he had lost some of his senses. And he said, I think it's time to pass the blessing on to my oldest son, Esau. Now, a Jewish father's blessing was a formal delegation of the father's leadership and authority to his oldest son. So Isaac's going to pass it on to his oldest son, Esau. And since the oldest son was assuming the responsibility and the authority of leadership, he actually received a double share of the father's possessions. He got a double share of the father's bank account. So, if you're a young man in that house, the bestowing of the blessing is pretty important. If, uh, if you don't believe me, just look at folks who have passed away and their families have literally destroyed one another over what's left. I mean, it's just crazy what they do. Money, I, I often say money makes people stupid. At least their dream comes out. So, so here, here we are, and he's about to hand out the blessing. And so in verse 2 of chapter 27, we read these words. Isaac says to Esau, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapon, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, just apart from, I'm going to move out of chapter 27 for a minute to Genesis 25, but it seems like he did not remember God's word that came to him in Rebecca. I don't know what was going on in his head, because when these two were born, Isaac prayed to the Lord 
for his wife, Genesis 25, 21, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The child, the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. By the way, we live with that very division today in our society. Okay? So Esau leaves his father, and while he's gone, Rebecca, his mother, seizes the opportunity to secure a blessing for Jacob. Jacob was her favorite. Esau was Isaac's favorite. That messes up a home right away. I'll just tell you. But, but so, so she says, i, I got to get in on this. We can't have Esau getting the blessing. It really belongs to Jacob. She quickly prepares some tasty food and tells Jacob to put on Esau's best clothes. To help fool blind old Isaac, she puts goat skins on Jacob's hands and arms to make them feel hairy. I, I think Esau must have been one hairy dude. <laughs> then she sends him in with the food to ask for the blessing. In verse 19, here's what we read. Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Big lie. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Now Isaac was suspicious because Jacob's voice didn't sound like Esau's. So he asked, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. I don't know. That might be using the Lord's name in vain. I don't know. Then in verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So, he blessed him. The blessing that was given, by the way, is found in verse 27 into 29. It says, So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell. Let me read that again. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. You smell pretty. Uh, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. This is the blessing. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be anyone who 
curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Then after Jacob received the blessing, he left. And shortly after that, obviously, Esau came in with a game he had killed or prepared and was ready to receive the father's blessing. And in verse 33, you have the father's reaction. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came? And I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. Means it's not going to kill you. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, my father. The blessing. Dr. Gary Smalley wrote a book titled The Blessing. And in it, he examines the very story that, that I just read to you. And he says that there are four ingredients that this blessing talks about that ought to be in every home. And when those four ingredients are present and practiced consistently, then our children will grow up solid and secure and confident in themselves, able to go out into the world and function normally. In fact, in the beginning, when God created man, he created man, and there was a boy. And God said concerning that said, it is not good that man should be alone. So to fill that void, he made woman, created woman and brought her to him. Because he knew that this person, this man, needed companionship. He didn't need a slave, he needed companionship. That's, that's the primary purpose of marriage, is so, these ingredients ought to be there in the home to create the environment that helps fill the void in our children's lives. And that's so important. If they're not there, the child ends up like Esau. Because that void is not filled in the home, we have children looking everywhere they can, to everyone they can, for something that will fill that void in their life. So let's talk about that void. What's in that void? The first ingredient in that void is a meaningful Genesis 27, Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who felt him or touched him. And in verse 26, Isaac says to Jacob, come here and kiss me, my son. Now, this isn't the only time in Scripture it talks about the importance of touch. Almost every time in Hebrew culture, when there is a blessing that 
is passed of any kind, it involves laying on of hands, it involves a kiss, it involves a, a, an embrace, something that conveys acceptance and love. And if that's not going on, it creates problems. I, I know of a particular home where, where, where that didn't happen. And the father didn't think it was important. And he didn't bestow that touch on the children's lives. That, that idea of, of touching them when they're young and loving them and caring some of the heartaches that we have in our homes with our children going somewhere else trying to get that. The Bible says in Mark chapter 10 that the people bought, brought children to Jesus so that he could touch them. He put those children on his knee and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Jesus knew what these children needed in order to feel loved and accepted. It's kind of important to do that in our homes. When children are small, they really can't communicate too well. They can't tell you how they feel. That's one of the hardest things with a small infant. They're crying, and they might be wet, and they might be dirty, and they might be tired, and they might be sick. And they might be angry. And they might be manipulating you. There's a lot of reasons they might be crying, but but they they can't tell you. But they want to hear from you. And there is so much to be said about a touch. The power of touch. I remember years ago when I went hospital tour of early hospital. They had just totally rebuilt the neonatal unit. And the nurse that was walking us through that unit and talking about it said, we have discovered basically this amazing thing. The importance of touch in these children's lives. And if parents aren't coming in and touching their children, we tell them they need to. They need to come in and touch them because that touch communicates. That hasn't always been that way in the hospital. I remember when our oldest child was born, they put him in an incubator and they put him in his own unit. They didn't touch him for six weeks. just got to look through the window of the room to the incubator and see this child laying there. They just hadn't come to grips with the importance of touch. We need to touch our children. In fact, Jacob was 40 years old when Isaac touched him and kissed him. And I think that no matter how old you are, this is me, I'm a touchy person. No matter how old you are, whether it's a handshake 
a pat on the back, an encouraging touch has a lot to say about relationships. And sometimes marriages get to a point where they go through days and days and days and husband and wife never touch one another. That's not good. Because God knows it's important to have a touch. The second ingredient is a spoken message of affection and love. You've got to say it. And here's how he said it in verse 27. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Wouldn't that bless your heart? You smell like a field. You smell like the woods. You know, people, men buy aftershaves, but it's supposed to make them smell like the woods, so I don't, maybe that's not all that bad. I do know this, that I, I want to smell right when you touch me. So, so uh, that's why I wash under my arms most of the time. <laughs> So, but, but what I want you to get out of this is that uh, to, to an old fellow like Esau, if he were talking to Esau, Isaac was talking to Esau, if Esau heard those words, they would be very meaningful to him. They would be a compliment, a communication of unconditional love. I want to use that about talking to our children about unconditional love. But a little play on words, but I don't care what you smell like. You're my child, and I love you. It's not about the smell. It's about stating that you love them. You see, parents, you got to be careful on this, are often quick to criticize. They're often quick to remind their children of their mistakes. I've heard them say, you dummy, why did you spill your milk? Or something else. You're, you're too lazy. You know, you're too something. You're too this. You always do this. You know, We ought to tear them down. I, I know constructive criticism. There's a place for that. I remember one time when Jeff, my second son, was working with me, and we were wiring in the garage, and, and, and um, he put a box for a light in a certain place in the roofing of the garage, and then he wired it all in. And then he come and got me. He said, "Dad, uh, is this okay?" A lot of things, but I'd 
because I was concerned we could get a great child even if it was wrong. His effort was great. I think that it's important to communicate love through the words you say. It says you're worth something. It says I'm glad God gave you to us. It says you are better than any present I ever could have received. They are words that communicate unconditional acceptance. Over and over again, I said to my children as they were growing up, I thank God for the wisdom that my daughter's here today, so I'll just use her name. I said, Jackie, you know what I love about you? She said, what? And I said, everything. Everything. That's what children want to hear. They want to hear words that say, I love you. You don't have to do anything to make me love you more. I love you unconditionally. That's what the word means. The third ingredient is assuring them of their value. Notice what Isaac says in verse 28. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Uh, he's telling him that he is valuable. Teach your children they have value. Let me tell you the number one way you can teach your child they have value. Number one, put it at the top of the list and everything else is a long way to look. Teach them that they are so valuable that God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, came into the world to die for them. That is where your value is. To know that God cared enough about you, Jesus cared enough about you to die for you. Sometimes we're too busy to tell them they have value. They, they, they come to talk to you, and, and, and I've done this so many times, you know, they want to talk to you, and, and uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you about a personal story. I'm telling you, when my kids came to me and said, they're standing there by me, they said, Dad? And soon they say, Dad? Pretty soon they say, Dad? And soon they say, Dad again? Then I heard him say in the background, sometimes he talks to me and sometimes he don't. <laughs> then he had my attention. And when I turned to him, I wanted him to know that he had value. By the way, fellas, concerning your wife, there's a lot of jokes about men not listening. They're only about half true. But it does give your wife value if you drop the paper and listen. It does give you your husband value if you stop what you're doing and listen. That communicates value. That is, by the way, blessing them. So think about doing that. 
you're saying they're valuable, you're saying they're worth something, you're saying that you're more important to me than a ball game, you're more important to me than a newspaper, you're more important to me than getting dishes done, you're more important to me than sewing, you are important. The fourth ingredient is the anticipation of a glorious future, a future. Verse 29, glorious future. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. Isaac is helping him set his eyes on a future that's really bright. There is hope. There's something else out there. And we need to help our children see that. Don't say you're never going to amount to anything. Help them see what they're going to amount to. You know, there's a verse in the scripture that Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. J. Vernon McGee defines this verse this way. He said, we are going to train up a child concerning the way he should go. And what he's saying is that God has a way he wants him to go. And parents are to find out that way. They're not to bring a child up in the way they think they should go, but in the way God wants them to go. Now, teach them the things of God them the things of God, and when they're old, they'll not forsake them. We're to help our children find their niche, to help them discover who they are, and help them discover why they've been made, and help them discover what's special about them. I haven't been lie. I have four children, and I have three sons, and they're, they're just three unique individuals. Isaac had two sons, and they were two totally different sons. To this particular blessing is find out what they are and help them be the very best they can be at that. Find the bend of their life and help them take that route. Now, where I've seen some exceptions to this in Christian parents is some father determines that his son is going to be a football player. And the son, maybe, after a lot of work, finally turns into a good football player, but he, but he doesn't like it because it's not him. Listen, I, had, I knew a father personally that always wished he had gone to college and played football, I mean played basketball. So he had a son, and his son grew up, and, and he had a basketball backboard out there, and he grew up there basketball to his son. Pretty soon his son got tall, so he was six foot five. Well, that son had to play basketball, and, and he had to get a scholarship to a college. And he got there to college, and he went another measure. Because that's not what he wanted to be good enough. That was not him. Father 
discern the heart of each of them, to help them be the very best men they can be. You say, well, how does that work in the marriage? Well, wives, watch this. Your job is to help your husband be the best him he can be. So don't be nagging and criticizing all the time, but help him be the best him he can be. By the way, nagging and criticizing doesn't work anyway. Why, husbands, help your wives be the best her she can be. Her skills, her talents, just be behind her and support her. We want to help them. So, these are the things that will help hold a family together and help fill the void that, that God says needs to be filled. It's a meaningful touch and a spoken message and assuring them of their value and giving them a vision of a glorious future. God wrapped that all up in the one verse in the Bible. That whole thing is in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Meditate on that and put it over, put what I've said over that verse, and you'll find it. You know, I think you're all familiar with the parable that we call the story of the prodigal son. Well, <clears throat> I want to look at it again, only with a different twist. Book written by Philip Yancey. Title of the book is "What's So Amazing About Grace." He tells the story of a girl who grows up in Traverse City, Michigan, disgusted with her old-fashioned parents when she believes overreact, overreact to her nose ring and to the music she listens to and the lengths of her skirts. She runs away. She ends up in Detroit, where she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. The man with the big car, she calls him Boss. Recognizes, the boss recognizes that since she's underage, men wouldn't pay a premium for her. So she goes to work for him. Things seem to be really good for a while. At least no one's trying to get her to change. But then she gets sick for a few days, and it amazes her how quickly the boss turns mean. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. One night while sleeping on the metal grates of the city to keep warm, she began to feel less like a woman of the world and more like a little girl. She begins to whimper, God, why did I leave? My dog back home eats better than I do. She realizes that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. Three times she called home and three times she got the answering machine. So finally, she leaves a message. 
He said, Mom and Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home and catching a bus to your, up your way. And I'll be there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I'll understand. During the seven-hour bus ride, she's preparing a speech for her father. And when the bus comes to a stop in Traverse City, the driver announces a 15-minute stop. She decides if no one's there, she'll just get back in the bus and go on. Fifteen minutes. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, but not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing party hats and blowing noisemakers. Taped across the wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome home. Now the crowd of well-wishers breaks her down. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes and begins a memorized speech. He interrupts her. He says, Bus time. We've no time for that. No time for apologies. We'll be late. A big party is waiting for you at home. I would say if in our home we would practice these four things, spoken message, a meaningful touch, assuring them of their value, giving them a vision of a glorious future. Even if your child strays, they will never hear from you again. So let's build homes like that. The blessing. Make your home a blessing. self-centered and self-centered serving and selfish. Lord, our pride gets in the way. Sometimes our anger gets in the way. And Lord, you just want us to have a happy home. And it seems like, Lord, the deck set against it. Lord, it's so hard to prevent that from happening. But Lord, we're asking you Everywhere we go, even in the harshest.
midst of disappointments. Lord, even when it's so hard to do something, help us know that by your grace and by the power of your Spirit working in us, we can always do your will. And I thank you for the blessing that you bestow upon us in the form of Jesus Christ and in the form of your Holy Spirit and in the form of your precious Word and in the form of your church and in the form of this local church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That will conclude today's services. You are dismissed, but I hope you go out of here 